when we got to Kuwait in the summer of 2009, I didn't really have a lot in the way of medical supplies. And so when we were done with the pre-Iraq training and all the briefings and stuff, I would just go exploring the base a little bit, right? They had these big bases in the middle of the desert. And I ran into this Navy first aid station. And at the time, the Navy was deeply involved in the ground war in Iraq, right? Because, you know, Al-Qaeda didn't have a fleet. So when I found this Navy aid station, it was great. I walked up there and I said, hey, I've been a medic for five minutes, if that. And I have no supplies, right? I've got a few bags of IV fluid that can treat hemorrhagic shock and some bandages, and that's literally it. And so this officer that I was speaking to was like, hey man, so we're getting another shipment in from Kuwait City in three days. If you're gonna be here in three days, I will give you an aid bag, right? And I will fill it for you. And I was like, thank you, sir, that's amazing. And then we left in two days. <laughs> I was so pissed. But you know, that's okay. Because I might have run into somebody that was there, but I might not have. I'm at this celebration for the veterans of my college, right, at the Indiana War Memorial. And I meet this guy that was a Navy medic, right? And I tell him the story of, you know, me asking for supplies at Kuwait years ago. He's like, you know, I was in a Navy aid station in Kuwait around that time in that same base that you were mentioning. And he was like, huh. And I was like, huh. So maybe we knew each other then, but maybe we didn't. I'll think, I'll say we did, right? I like to think we did, but I'll leave the idea open for posterity to decide. Once I returned from mid-tour leave in uh, January of 2010, my unit had moved while I was gone. And they were nice enough to give me a forwarding address so I knew where to meet up with them, right? So we get to COB Adder, and Al-Assad is sort of central west Iraq. And COB Adder is like kind of south Iraq right, kind of closer to the Kuwaiti border. And by that point, they had switched the name from Operation Iraqi Freedom to Operation New Dawn, which meant that we were shutting down the Iraq War. And yes, the idea of shutting down the Iraq War in 2010 seems a little optimistic, but still, it was a hopeful time. And at that time, all of the smaller fobs were being torn down and being condensed and everyone was being shuttled and condensed into the majors kind of super bases that we had out in the middle of the desert. And so the chow line at Adder was longer than it normally would have been because there was, you know, two or three times as many people there. And we shared the base with the Air Force. They were always pretty cool to me. 
We worked with a lot of Air Force medics and doctors and the combat support hospital there. We watched Armed Forces uh, Network and then the Simpsons would always play at like 1130, right? And so we got to watch the Simpsons over lunch and it was awesome, right? It was consistent and repetitive and you knew what's happening day after day after day. On deployment, if you could build your life into such a routine that it just repeat, 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 then you could really make the time go by faster. It was a trick that I would use during the pandemic 10 years later, where you build such a strict routine that all of the days are kind of the same and they bleed into each other and they repeat faster and faster and faster. And during my time there, I had discovered this little coffee house that the chaplain was running in the base chapel. And it was a little impromptu coffee bar he had set up. And then I'd go to church on Sunday mornings and then get a cup of coffee. And then the building that the chapel was in was built around this really old tree that went up through like two or three floors of the building. And you could sit in different spots, right? And sometimes I would sit in the main room and you'd see the tree go through the ceiling. And then sometimes I would sit on the roof, just kind of watch the sunrise. And sometimes I'd bring my laptop and I'd write some of my earlier stories up there. One of the earliest, probably one of the most successful pieces I've had is a book called Veterans of the Belron War. And it kind of was my first attempt at a memoir, I suppose. At the time, I didn't really know how to write a memoir that didn't involve zombies or space aliens. And it's kind of hard to take a 30,000 foot view on your own story when you're not even sure how it ends. You're not even sure how to comprehend it at 21. And the prologue is Boy Meets Girl in Spaceport. And I had a similar sort of adventure. On my way back from the States during mid-tour leave, I'm stuck in Ali Al-Saleem, Kuwait for about a week. And I meet this girl. And we just kind of clicked. And, you know, we just kind of sat and talked for a week. And that sparked the opening prologue because he meets a girl in a spaceport and they just talk. And it's all just two people talking. It's my dinner with Andre. It's exposition, right? It's character development via conversation. And when you first begin writing, you always write about yourself. And my early character of Tommy Sampson had a lot of me in him, but also there wasn't a lot of nuance there. As I look back, I wonder if he's so sketched out because my own understanding of myself was so sketched out at the time. Because who really understands themselves at 21, 22? And as an artist, if you're going to create a character, create a piece, so much of yourself goes into it that you can see how much the author perhaps understands themselves by how deep and nuanced the character is. Maybe maybe I'm just hypothesizing there. Maybe I'm maybe I'm looking back on 
a real early version of myself and before I put the work in to understand how I function. And maybe at the time I didn't quite have the tools in my toolbox to do it because when you're younger, when you're a little kid, a lot of life happens to you. You know, your parents tell you what to do, your teachers tell you what to do. And then as I got older, I went into the army and then the army told me what to do, right? And while I had agency in my own personal life, the life that I lived, the events that surrounded me seemed to happen to me at the time, right? It wouldn't be till much later that I figured out how to control life, right? Or at least assert the agency that helps you organize your life instead of your life being organized around you and you just trying to understand it and survive it and get by, right? And looking back on these early Tommy Sampson books, I can see the guy I used to be before I learned how to organize my life, right? When life just kind of happened to me and all around me. Before we had gotten to Adder, there was this story that we had all read about how the local terrorist cell had gotten jobs on the base and they found a bunch of uh, American uniforms in the garbage. And with those uniforms, they were planning on shooting up the place because there were some third country nationals that were hired to work at the PX on Adder and they were walking past and they saw a bunch of shaggy-haired, bearded Iraqi dudes in U.S. uniforms. Their hair and their beard gives them away as not U.S. soldiers, but they were dressed as U.S. soldiers. And they were loading AK-47s and stuff. And the third country national got a hold of some U.S. people and said, Hey, these guys are about to shoot up the base. And so they contacted the quick response force and they came in and blew those terrorists back to hell where they belonged. So when I got to Cobb Adder, I remember I'm walking back from the hospital by myself. And I hear this sort of rustling going on in the trash cans. And it's probably 8 o'clock at night, right? So it's getting, it's not quite dark. And I'm remembering this story of the terrorist who grabbed the uniforms out of the trash cans and thought, oh my God, it's happening again. And I'm the only one here. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and then I just kind of like walked up and then this Ugandan guy shoots up and he's got this like printer in his hands and he's all just teeth and smiles and he's excited. And I realized, oh, he was dumpster diving. I'm really glad I didn't load around. <laughs> like, that's how you create an international incident. And I got to know a lot of Ugandans on the base there because they worked as, you know, security force quite a bit, right? Like, they check IDs and stuff. And uh, one of them taught me a little bit of Swahili, right? Like, Ode Otea means, hi, how are you? 
and Bella Balloongi is I'm fine, thank you, that sort of thing. And Yambo is kind of a general hello. And there was only one, there was one guy that I kind of became buddies with, right? And he was telling me how he was working security for the Americans on the base just so that he could save up enough money to go back home to Uganda and start a hardware store, right? And I don't know what happened to him, but I really hope that's what he did because he was such a good dude. And as we were getting ready to leave Iraq, I remember we cleared the trailers we were living in and then we had these redeployment tents and these showers that we shared with the local nationals that worked on the base. And in the tents, they had these rows of racks, right? You get these little thin army cots and your, your gear goes underneath that. You know, sometimes people would get into fist fights because they misplaced something or someone, or they think someone would take something or somebody would. And I remember one time two guys were getting into it and then one of them threw a boot and then shattered the light fixture uh, in the back of the tent. And I was like, you know what? Screw this. I'm going to work. <laughs> this, I'm just going to work at the hospital. There's air conditioning there. And we had air conditioning in the tents most of the time. And they'd shut it off by like 7 a.m. Because 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. was when the maintenance crews came by to do maintenance on the air conditioners. And 655 the tent's probably 95 degrees and feeling very cool given the fact that outside is 140. And by 7.05, the background temperature of the whole room had risen 40 degrees, something like that. And so it's just incredibly hot and you so your eyeballs are so dry, you can feel them scraping it against your inner eyelid. And we had this guy who was having a hard time by the end of the deployment. And he just wanted to talk to his wife. And they were wanting us to stay in the tents. That was his coping mechanism. Was calling his wife at the same time every day. And at that point, we're getting ready to rip back to the States. And so we were restricted to the tents. And he didn't really know how to cope. Because a lot of his problems stemmed from him being an outsider in the company. He was a good guy. He was a nice guy. He just was a little weird and didn't really know how to fit in, and which I've been that guy many, many times. And it was there I figured out what would be my greatest strength and role as a medic, which was finding the weird ones, the odd people, the ones that don't quite have the ability to fit in, maybe, and then understanding them and maybe saying, you know, as Woody says, you've got a friend in me. And then I remember after all of that kind of calmed down, like a day later, maybe he found me at the laundry service and this was like midnight, right? And I was supposed to report to the hospital at 05 or 06, something like that. And then he sat and talked to me for a couple hours, right? And I kind of gave him maybe some suggestions on how to talk to people a little bit better. You know, and then at 2 a.m. my laundry was done because there's always these people online, so it took forever. And then I was getting ready to go to bed because wake up was at 05. And then one of my other truck drivers came in and said, Doc, I'm having trouble trusting women. And then we talked for an hour, hour and a half, so that took me to like 3.30. 
And at that point, I said, forget it, and just went to Green Beans for a few hours and then went to go work at the hospital at 05. And that was a lot of my experiences, Doc. That's a lot of what I did was just be somebody to talk to. Maybe have one smart thing to say if my brain's working. Since, like, suicide was such a problem and mental health was such a huge issue over there and here in the States... A big part of what I did was just be someone to talk to and then just say, hey, it's going to be okay. Because after all that happened, very shortly after that, we found ourselves on a plane ride back to the States. And we had a stop in Germany. And I remember breathing just clean air in Germany. Right? Because, like, you don't realize just how dusty and dirty and poor the air quality is. In the Middle East, until you get to a place that's not a desert. And we're just looking at the clear skies and all of the trees that were near the airport and how green it really was. And then we get to Maryland and one of our flight attendants was this kind of like old grumpy black dude. And like he kept talking shit to everybody <laughs> he was so just kind of annoyed at all of us right and i remember one of a one of the guys in my company were like trying to reach in their cabin and reach in the overhead compartment to play with something to get something out of his bag and so the old grumpy black dude's like hey so maybe if your friend would sit down and buckle a seatbelt we could go you could go home your wives are waiting you're waiting on that guy right there but no he wants to go over there and play by himself he wants to play in the bag okay man go ahead keep playing in the bag that's fine and this guy was amazing right <laughs> like he was he was my favorite flight attendant that we had <laughs> like i love this dude and, and I think he knew how to talk to soldiers, and I imagine he wore a uniform as well in a previous life. Because he kind of had that old, like, retired Sergeant Major vibe. Like, he was deeply unimpressed by us, and rightfully so. And then when we got to El Paso, and I remember we're going up these escalators, and then the USO had organized a welcome home party for us, right? It's kind of like it was a bunch of people clapping and there were like pretty girls giving us flowers and Bibles and all sorts of great stuff. And then we get to Fort Bliss again and we get off the bus and then we form up and then we're in front of this garage. And as the garage door opens, we march in and then smoke, right? And then the friends and families of the unit are all around there. The FRG is there. And everyone's just clapping and happy to see us. And there's smoke everywhere and stuff. And it's, it's like this kind of cool welcome home ceremony. And a lot of my friends in the unit were going to something called a bubble party. Where they go into a hotel and drink. And there's bubbles, right? The whole hotel room is full of bubbles and stuff. And they invited me, which was very nice. And I actually opted for going to the bowling alley. And I sat at the bar and I had a couple beers. And I talked to the bartender and I said, you know, I just got back from Iraq tonight. And he said, welcome home. This round's on me.
actually didn't get my driver's license until I'd gotten back from Iraq. When I was a kid, you had to pay something like $200 to get a license through the high school itself. And so, me not having $200, I stopped worrying about driving a car and learned to love my bicycle. Because if I didn't need a car, why buy a car? And so, I took that sort of mindset into the army with me, where first eight, nine months, we just marched everywhere. I didn't need a car. So, when I got to Fort Gordon in 2007, my barracks room was less than a quarter mile away from the company HQ where we had formation in the mornings. And that itself was maybe half a mile away from the chow hall, which the chow hall was maybe a half mile, maybe a mile away from the PX. And it wasn't really until we got back from deployment in 2010 that I ever need one because we came back to the same barracks that we had left the year prior. And so when your barracks room is in the same building as your company HQ, and all you gotta do is go downstairs, what do you need a car for, right? The USO's right next door, the chow hall's half a mile down the road. You're good. But when we got back, we had a new HQ. We were transferred from 47th Trans to the 15th Sustainment Brigade Surgical Cell. And that building was all the way across Fort Bliss. And so, I needed a car. The motor sergeant helped me get a set of wheels. And two of his mechanics went with me and took me from place to place to place to place to different used car lots. I had three, four, five, six thousand dollars banked up in my account. And so we get to this lot and I see this van and it's a piece of crap van, right? It's a 99 Dodge Grand Caravan. It's got a little bit of rust on the door, bumpers not looking too good. And so I look at it and I'm like, oh, that's my car, <laughs> right? Because it kind of looked like a shuttlecraft from Star Trek The Next Generation, <laughs> which is a stupid reason to spend $3,000 on a van. but. That's what I did. And those two guys are like, are you sure you want to buy a van? And I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. I know what I'm doing. And they're like, well, it's your money, Lester. And I had this strange feeling of kinship for the character of Malcolm Reynolds from Firefly when he first laid eyes on Serenity and his first mate, Zoe, was looking at him like, what are you, that's a, this is a terrible, this is a piece of junk. What are you doing? This, this is not our ride. This is a bad idea. And he just saw it and he fell in love with it because he knew it was his. And I know that this is so utterly ridiculous. But when I took one look at that busted down piece of junk minivan, I smiled and I fell in love because I knew it was mine. <laughs> slowly scattered to the four winds. The army in its infinite wisdom decided a piece at a time where to send us. 
Some people went to Fort Knox. Some got out. Some went to Korea. The medics went to brigade headquarters. And that brigade was a recent arrival at Fort Bliss. Because in 2010, when this took place, the army was going through a period of reorganization where they were kind of reshuffling the deck, as it were. And the 15th Sustainment Brigade was at Fort Hood while we were on deployment. So we were a lone company that was assigned to a brigade that we had never met. So we were very much kind of on our own, which I always liked. But when we got back, that brigade had done a lateral move from Hood to Bliss, and we were sent to brigade headquarters, right? The medics were. 47th Transportation Company stayed in the same place. And I stayed in the 47th Trans Barracks because if something's working, why change it? And soon after we got back, some people self-destructed because bath salts were a big thing where I was at there. Some guys got hooked on them and they kept putting that stuff up their nose and they'd get into fights. One guy's heart stopped. Like, he's he lived. He's good now. But, you know, bath salts will kill you. And... There was a strange sense of jet lag being back at Fort Bliss because it was a giant American super base out in the desert. That's pretty much what Alisad and Adder were. Fort Bliss was just 45 degrees cooler and you could leave without being captured by somebody, hopefully. And there, you know, they worried about cartel violence instead of the Taliban. But you could go to like... A coffee house off base at Fort Bliss. We weren't, we were, you know, you're restricted to post in Iraq, which makes sense. And I had a harder time coming back home stateside than I would have realized initially. It was difficult. I felt a weird sense of guilt thinking, oh, I gotta get back there to the show. You know, I gotta get back in the game. There's people that I could help. I remember a phone call with my father who said something very smart. He said, you are not irreplaceable. There's 20,000 guys that are just like you. And you're allowed to take a break. You don't need to go back to back to back. You'll be fine. And he was right. And it was around this time that I reconnected with my buddy from medical school, Raj. Raj had found a place in post housing and brought his wife and five boys with him. He had a whole squad of kids, and I think they were all under 10 at the time. They might have been under 8. They were pretty young, and so they adopted me, and it was great. I'd get, like, a big bag of dollar cheeseburgers, and I'd come over and hang out with him and his wife, and I'd just take the cheeseburgers and throw them at the boys, and they'd just, like, fist fight over the cheeseburgers, and it was awesome. And I remember when the kids would go to sleep, we would just turn up music and drink cheap whiskey and dance and I remember this song it was the Travis Barker remix of the Busta Rhymes song Don't Touch Me and we would just drink and invite friends over we'd all have like a dance party and it'd just be four or five of us maybe but still it was a good time it was this great family this sense of belonging that I missed so much during my adventure away and I can never thank him enough I can never thank him enough
and part of our duties at Brigade Headquarters was to run the Combat Lifesaver course. And while we were there at Fort Bliss, we had this paintball course. And so we could do like this big interactive paintball thing. And it was awesome. And I thought I was like some big tough guy. So I'd like be kind of a dick the whole time whenever I was teaching the course, right? For parts of it. <laughs> Speaking of dicks, when we were running students through the paintball lanes, I was just sitting there yelling at people and like, you do this and you go here. And I got shot in the dick by paintball cutter, right? <laughs> and you know, there's nothing more humbling than that. And that took the 24-year-old version of me down a peg or two because the 24-year-old version of me was feeling pretty good having coming back from Iraq. So he's probably a little full of himself. And probably needed a paintball to the dick just to bring him back down to earth and hair. But that's okay. Sometimes you just need that as a human. And I was briefly engaged at Fort Bliss. I was entirely too immature. And both of us entirely unprepared for what marriage really was. And we both moved on. And I wish her nothing but the best. It's really for the best. It didn't work out. It's really for the best she broke it off. I can say that now, 10 years later, but at the time, oh, I was so brokenhearted. Oh, sad little 24-year-old me. But no, I'm glad she did. And after she left for Afghanistan, I remember being at this party outside of the barracks by the grills where we used to hang out and drink Bud Light Lime all the time. And, you know, I was just depressed and sad and moping around and... Telling my sob story to anybody who'd listen. And then I look to my left and there's like this dude and he's brought some really young looking girls to the barracks party. And I go up to him and I'm like, bro, how old are these kids? And they were high school kids. And I'm like, nope, <laughs> the children have to go. They are going now. I will call the first sergeant. I will wake up the sergeant major. At this point, I had like 30 days until my ETS date. And so he sent the high school kids home. They were probably 16 or 17. I had gone to my NCOs the following Monday, real discreet like. I'm like, hey man, this is what happened at the barracks. So that got up the chain of command. And the next week, we're having basically the same party at the grill outside the barracks drinking beer. And a bunch of dudes in khakis and collared t-shirts with like white kevlar body armor and pistols on their hips and flashlights show up it's cid right <laughs> and i'm like oh shit <laughs> well, this can't be good but i sent the children home the week before so i'm like oh i'm okay there's no way they're wanting to talk to me and yeah they just rolled up and checked ids and then they left and then we were like, well, holy shit, we still got half a case of Natty Ice Light. <laughs> and it was at this point that I had begun to wind down my active duty time. And I was going to the classes, right? They had these like out processing things where you go sit in a briefing room and someone from like Homeland Security rolls up and they're like, hey, you too can protect the homeland. And, and someone from Border Patrol was there. And they're like, hey, do you want to join the border patrol and be hunted by the cartels? And I'm like, no, thank you. That sounds awful. And I remember my last day. My van was all packed. 
Everything was in the back of it. And I had launched at the PX one last time. And at the time, they had switched from a beret back to a patrol cap as part of your duty uniform. It was about a week or two past that date. But I had decided as I walked into the out-processing building, I'd gotten all my signatures, I'd turned in all the gear, and I had my beret on, right? Even though it wasn't technically regulation anymore, it was what I had grown up in. It was the thing that we took so much pride in. It was the rite of passage that we got to wear once we had graduated basic training. We had earned the right to wear it. So I was going to wear it one last time walking out the door, right? And as I walked into the door, I remember signing the paperwork and just smiling. And they shook my hand and said, thank you for your service. And I said, thank you for the opportunity. It was fun. <laughs>